Should we be taxing Scrooge McDuck wealth? Can we even do it? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, we talk with friend of the pod, Faria Mohudin, our favorite tax justice researcher and activist. She is currently a senior program officer with the International Budget Partnerships Tax Equity Program. If you enjoy this conversation, please share your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. All right, give her. Faria, you are here. You are here to tell us about wealth taxes. What? What is a wealth tax, Faria? <laughs> a wealth tax is the silver bullet that's going to solve our problems. Oh, Yay. amazing. <laughs> this is what we want to hear. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there is, you know, a sense that that's what people really want to hear. In a way, a, a wealth taxes are a form of taxation that can help address the severe inequality that we're not only seeing, but I think with the war in Ukraine and the impact of COVID-19 that we're all feeling, right? I think a lot of listeners will have heard it being bandied about and being like, why is it, you know, coming into the fore now? And it's about how rich people actually have money, right? Um, When people say tax the rich, tax the rich, what does that actually mean? And that means taxing wealth rather than income. Because most rich people don't make big salaries. I mean, some of them will make very large salaries. And I'm putting salaries in quotation marks. Like, you know, you'll hear, oh, this CEO's compensation package is worth, you know, say a million, two million, what have you. But when you hear the words compensation package, a very small part of that will be in uh, waged labor income. The majority of the compensation package will be made up in assets, which are wealth. And so we want to be taxing that wealth. And, you know, just to give people a primer, you know, the rest of us plebs make money by getting by getting a salary. Right. And we get taxed on our income. That's an income tax. But very rich people will ask to be paid in assets. So these are stocks. In some cases, this can be things like people will be like, oh, I would like to be paid in art. These are real things or gold bullion if you will, you know, the things you hear about when you work in this field. And those things are taxed very differently. Norm, in, in a lot of places, wealth is taxed at a fraction, at a mere fraction of what income taxes are. In most of the OECD, so those are the group of developed countries, income taxes are somewhere in the 30% range. Wealth taxes on assets that can gain value over the course of the year. So this is often stock, real estate, maybe some forms of gold or gold bullion, depending on whether or not you've, and this will be important, whether or not you've disclosed that you have these things, will be taxed often at 10%. That's called a capital gains tax, right? And so if you're holding most of your money in these kinds of assets, you're not getting taxed at all, right? This is when this is what you uh, what people mean when you hear that. Okay, yeah, Elon Musk paid an effective tax rate of three percent because the majority of his money is being held as Tesla stock, which is very valuable. He's not drawing a salary, 
Yeah, and that's just the stuff the government knows about. It's, it, is it? Am I right in thinking that it's it's kind of easier to hide wealth internationally than income? Yeah. For example, art, gold bars, yachts. <laughs> uh, there are reasons why I'm bringing these sorts of assets up, or even mansions. Right. What you can do is you can put your art or your gold bars or your yacht in what's called a free port, right? These are um, often ports, and I'm using, again, ports as a place where goods come and then get transported. So these, are, can, be, these can be places that actually have like a seaport or um, are you know, free zones, I think is another term that people might know, um, where if you incorporate a company there that holds assets, you will not be taxed at all. And so if you say, okay, I'll make Faria uh, FZ LLC, which is Faria Free Zone Company LLC, and I say, actually, it's that company that owns my house, that owns all my art, uh, that owns my yacht, I don't get taxed on that, right? But beyond that, often these kinds of entities are incorporated in countries or jurisdictions that have very, very strong secrecy laws. Governments have no way of finding out what it is that I'm actually holding. In fact, sometimes they might not even know that it's me that's holding it, right? Um, because my name will be obscured. It will be what's called sometimes numbered companies, shell companies that, that will own these assets for me. So it's, it can be very hard to yeah, even know what is actually owned. Yeah, so that um, the pervasive secrecy around wealth. Um, uh, am I right in thinking that that's one reason advocates are sometimes calling for wealth taxes to be implemented as like a global thing? You could then have rules set up internationally so that we would know what like this wealth looked like, how much you, it was valued at, and things like that. Absolutely. So if people who've read uh, Thomas Piketty's book will be familiar with a term called the Global Asset Register, it is a proposal to create a comprehensive international registry of all wealth and assets and what? They're real beneficial owners in order to tackle global tax abuse and redress inequalities. So this hits on two of the things I've said. One is the fact that most people will hold their wealth in other jurisdictions that will tax these assets at a very non-existential rate, right? Like as in it's, there's no taxes on the assets they hold in certain jurisdictions. These jurisdictions will have very strong financial secrecy. And the other thing is that even if you were able to, okay, see what assets are being held in certain jurisdictions, the ability to find out who are the real beneficial owners, who is actually benefiting from the income that is being made or the value of these assets is often very hard to find. And so a global asset register aims to solve this problem, but that's why a wealth on taxes has to be a global effort, right? To capture all this wealth that's hidden, you know, in, in kind of all the four corners of the world, but mostly in the Caribbean <laughs> tax haven islands. I, I actually have a question that might be a little pedantic, and it's fine if you don't know the answer. But if someone is holding most of their wealth in art and yachts and houses, and we levy like a 3% tax being like, okay, your wealth is worth this much, you owe us, I don't know, a million dollars. What if they don't have a million dollars that's liquid? Do they 
and then they so then they have to sell one of their assets, but then that would lower their overall wealth. Maybe, like I said, maybe I'm being too pedantic. <laughs> but since they've bought that asset, it's appreciated in its value, right? So even if they're selling it, if you're charging like three percent of the value of that thing, most of these assets will have appreciated more than that in the in the time that it was and that it was acquired. So if if I have a painting that's worth like ten million and it appreciates in value like 20%. Even if you're taxing like 3% of that, if I sell it, I'm still making like I'm still making a profit. Yeah, I'm wondering if we can maybe uh, step back just for a second and talk about um, like why why is a wealth tax a good idea? Or is it a good idea? <laughs> and if so, why? <laughs> I looked this up because I was like, what is what's the math on why do we need one? And I mean, I don't think our listeners will be shocked to learn that 1% of Canadians, which is like 370,000 people or less, control 26% of the wealth in our country. And that's just Galen Weston. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like Faria did a really good job on our last episode that you joined us for to talk about like tax evasion. You, I loved the way you described taxes as like a subscription service to being in society. And the rich are literally robbing society by not paying taxes because they get their wealth based on the the hard work of, first of all, the people who are actually generating the wealth that they're taking, but also like on the public services that we're all paying for out of our salaries, like people using roads to go to their jobs to make money for Galen Weston, you know, like, and like the public education system. So I found that number really interesting. And then I also looked at what the parliamentary budget officer figured that like a wealth tax would like bring in for us. And they figure a 1% wealth tax on wealth over $20 million would result in revenue of over $5 billion annually and apply to less than 0.1% of Canadian households. Yeah. And if you if you had a 3% rate for wealth exceeding $100 million, they estimate that tax could bring in almost $20 billion, which for any Canadians that have been following the health debate, it gets you like most of the way to what provinces were asking for in terms of health transfer increases. So that's a pretty big chunk of change. Yeah. The NDP actually in their 2021 platform had a 1% wealth tax uh, over $10 million on their platform, which would have raised in their like calculations, like $60 billion annually, which is like $1,600 for every person in Canada. And like Kristen said, like some examples of what we could get for that would be like $15 billion gets us universal pharmacare and would save the average household $600 a year in medical expenses. And the government would save billions in healthcare costs when like a manageable condition becomes a serious crisis or when complications develop because people like stopped taking their medicine because they couldn't afford it anymore. You know, like there's so many reasons to have universal healthcare, but like even if you don't care about people's health, maybe you care about like the cost of living, $6 billion annually over five years would get 40% of Canada's homes and other buildings to be like energy efficient. Like you could retrofit them to use less energy. So our bills would like drop by up to 50%. It would reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It would create, it would create hundreds of thousands of jobs. I don't know, Freya, do you have another reason why we should have a wealth tax? Or maybe you think it's a bad idea. <laughs> no, I mean, do you, I guess you missed the part where I said it was a silver bullet we're looking for. <laughs> I mean, yes, those are all great reasons. You know, there's a few things that a wealth tax does, right? 
So the point that both of you have raised is that a small tax on this large amount of wealth that has accumulated can solve a lot of the budget constraints that we're facing in the social sectors, right? When governments pass austerity measures, you know, it's always, I don't know, like education, health, social care that gets hit. And we're constantly being told, well, we don't have the money for it, right? And you know what? Here's where the money actually is. But beyond that, I think there's a sense, there's been a growing sense, right? Particularly after this experience in the, I mean, I don't want to say the pandemic is over. It's not. But, you know, in the first part of the pandemic that some people really have it much easier, right? And things are getting harder for for whom it is not already easy, right? This um, generational divide between, you know, boomers and millennials, right? Where what a boomer could do, we simply can't because, you know, people have pulled the ladder up behind them, right? And part of that ladder is this accumulation of wealth. Um, I don't have the numbers from Canada, but in the U.S., right, you know, since 1979, right, incomes for the top 0.1% increased by 349%, right? Crazy numbers, 15 times as much as the increase for the bottom 90% of earners over the same period. And these incomes, you know, these big CEO paychecks or what have you, has allowed them to buy up assets and to create incomes and then accumulate year after year, creating these like huge fortunes. So taxing income at higher rates is important, but it doesn't touch this wealth that's already managed to accumulate, right? Like, so looking at someone's like salary, right, is not a real measure of their true economic status or their ability to pay their fair share. And that's what it's about, right? It's about redressing this fact that like, a very few amount of people hold a massive amount of wealth and they are making it actively harder for us to pay for society. And as you said, if it's a subscription to society, they're stealing from us. And that's part of how they steal. I know we've already touched on this, but some of the wild ways that people are like hiding their money is like stocks, vacation properties, trust funds, yachts. Like if you have more than one yacht, I mean, honestly, if you have a yacht at all, like, <laughs> um, expensive art, savings, cars, you know, like you add all of that up and then you subtract people's liabilities, like mortgages, credit card debt, it's outstanding loans, et cetera. And then you just, you're like, okay, 3% of what you have here is what you owe to us. Right. And it's like, it's not hard. It's, it's, it's the, it's the hiddenness of it all. But like, we're going to talk about how to get around that in um, like, I mean, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but it's not impossible to do. Yeah. Something I just want to add, like we've talked about this before, but I think it's important to highlight that the effective tax that the very wealthy are paying is actually in a lot of cases lower than the tax rate that people at the bottom of the income spectrum are paying. And that this, this gap in taxing wealth has a lot to do with that. Um, so in 2018, for the first time, um, this is for the U.S. We don't have uh, Canada often lacks a lot of information about these kinds of things. Um, but for the U.S. anyway, in 2018, for the first time, secretaries were paying a higher effective tax rate than CEOs, which I think highlights a huge gap that needs to be solved. Maybe, Korea, as you're sort of alluding to, 
a wealth tax isn't the only thing that will solve it, and on its own it won't solve it, but it's a huge part of the solution, I think. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think it's also the scale of it, right? There's trillions, trillions of dollars of wealth hidden around the world. And, you know, when we're talking, when governments are talking about the scale of the social problems they're trying to solve, the scale is billions, right? And so even putting a minuscule tax, like 3%, on trillions of dollars of wealth raises incredible amounts of money to solve these social problems. It's, it's you know, this thing of like, well, $600 billion is a lot. Sure, $600 billion is a lot, but the scale of hidden wealth is estimated to be around $8 trillion USD. Well, and in Canada, the combined wealth that we know of, of the richest 1% is about a trillion dollars. And like, people don't understand exactly how much money that is. So I actually did some math for, for how much money would be needed for a lifetime, right? So if you're spending, let's say, $300,000 a year, which I think is a pretty healthy budget, personally, it's more than I'll probably ever have, it would take you 333 years to spend $100 million. And I just want people to sit with that for a second. $100 million is $300,000 a year for 333 years. The other thing I want to highlight is that uh, most proposals for wealth taxes are, they're targeting really like the very top, just tiny chunk of the wealth spectrum, right? So well, most wealth tax proposals are not going after upper middle class people. They're going after like the Scrooge McDucks. So if you're, if you're somebody who's making like a, a fairly high income, who has a house maybe, you know, maybe there is an argument that there should be a wealth tax on that. I'm kind of of that view. Uh, but, you know, really, we're targeting people in the Canadian proposal anyway um, that have $20 million in wealth or more. And that is much more than the vast majority of Canadians have. It would be about 25,000 families uh, in a population of 37 million, something like that. So it's a very, very small chunk of people. And people are proposing like 1% or 2% or 3% on $20 million, I think they can afford 3%. You know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. And so, like some countries that have already kind of implemented a wealth tax are Norway, Spain, Argentina, France, Colombia, Netherlands, Italy, Belgium, and Switzerland. And Switzerland's a really interesting one because it's a really good example of like, this argument, I was, oh my God, you guys, I was reading arguments from the right against wealth taxes and the Fraser Institute like was publishing a whole bunch of stuff about like this is why a wealth tax is bad for the economy. The rich would flee our country. And it's like, well, first of all, there's no evidence to suggest that capital flight happens. <laughs> it just feels so disingenuous to read arguments from the right against wealth taxes because they're like, "Oh, it's going to hit the little guy who earns $235,000 a year." And I'm like, first of all, that's not the little guy. And second of all, that's not even who we're talking about. Yeah, I just think in the context of that, it's worth highlighting that wealth taxes are extremely popular. So even though the right is trying very hard, there has been polling in Canada, at least to suggest that about 80% of Canadians support a wealth tax. Um, and that includes, by the way, about two thirds of conservative voters. So across the political spectrum, this is something that's popular, uh, which is why I find it so surprising that it hasn't been more seriously discussed as something we should do right now. I mean, it's also like coming from 
millionaires themselves, right? Like there's been movements like patriotic millionaires, resource generation, you know, there's a group of hundred millionaires and billionaires from nine countries that back in January, 2022 published an open letter to government and business leaders saying like, please tax us, right? Like we don't want to be rich, but then live in countries where the state is collapsing. There's no point in us having 10 yachts if, you know, uh, the, you know, I'll take the example of the UK, the NHS is collapsing in on itself. There's no point in that. Yeah, because who's going to work on your yacht if everyone's sick? Exactly that. Yeah, it's very surprising that it's being seen as this like weird political third rail. But holding on to wealth is deeply rooted in neoliberal ideas of family, I would say, about what we pass on to the next generation, ideas like legacy. But I think more and more people are understanding that we're now living in a world where, you know, I think about things like people actively saying, like, I don't want to have children because I don't know what kind of world they'll be in, right? There are some very, very big problems that we are attempting to solve and governments are saying, we don't have the money for that. And people are saying, is that actually true? Yeah. And like every system, it seems like in society that's supposed to support inclusion has become threadbare. You know, whether you look at our healthcare systems, I think fairly common a- across Anglo welfare states, maybe New Zealand's an exception. I don't know. But healthcare system spending is eroding. At least in Canada, the, the rates of social assistance have atrophied for a very long time. We're living in much more precarious times. And a big part of that is because the government can't afford to do what it used to do. And the concentration of wealth has quite a lot to do with that, I would say. I have like a really, a question that I didn't look into that I'm just kind of thinking of now that maybe we won't be able to answer. But I've been kind of like thinking about the redistribution of wealth overall in general. And the idea of, I mean, you're both economists, how it would kind of work if everybody had more equal access to wealth. And I'm thinking about it. I've been working in the tourism industry again. I finally got back into it. <laughs> and uh, and I'm thinking about places where demand for travel is so high that uh, Tofino in BC is actually a really good example of this, that like hotels are charging absolutely shocking amounts for a hotel room that's like, mm, okay. And it's, and it's completely pricing out like local people because only the super rich can like afford to spend $10,000 to spend three days in a medium hotel on a beach in Tofino. And so I wonder if more and more people had access to like just general wealth and we all started doing and buying the same things, would that not create like bottlenecks in what we can do? And would it not just like, I don't know, I don't know. I guess I don't know how the economy works. (laughs) John Maynard Keynes had um, a perspective on this. um, And for him, and I, I agree with this perspective, the more that you distribute income and wealth around society, the more productive the economy as a whole is. Um, Because, you know, if people are putting most of their money into gold bars and art, that's not paying for incomes. That's not helping mom and pop shops to um, to sustain their businesses. It's it's wealth that is sitting, you know, like the dragon smog <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. Uh, 
that's that's what um, you know having wealth that is concentrated looks like. Um, if you have wealth that's more distributed across society, um, it's better a because that money moves around more and goes to productive uses, um, and it's more likely to be able to stay within communities. Um, but secondly, then the economy is geared towards regular people, right? I think as you start to have increasing inequality, one of the things it also does is it like it splits the culture because the if you think about actually um, Milton Friedman has this thing where he talks about uh, money as a proportional system of representation. And I actually think that's like a really good way to say like we should have socialist economies because you want people to be able to vote in equal proportions, right? So the more that we're, our wealth is concentrated um, and income is concentrated, the more that the economy is going to tilt itself towards the small number of people with a lot of wealth. I mean, I wouldn't call myself an economist. That's uh, who. Yeah, me neither. That's a, that's a, that's a <laughs> very broad claim to make. Um, I'm, you know, I'm worse. I'm a political scientist. Uh, but Kristen's exactly right. One of the issues you see with this kind of wealth is that it's looking for something to do, right? And when someone first told me about NFTs, this was, I'm going to say the summer of 2019 is the first time I actually heard about an NFT. And when it was explained to me, I, I don't know, like I literally saw like the sickle and hammer uh, materialize in front of my <laughs> eyes and Masaya is like playing in the background because I was like, oh, what this is telling me is there's too much wealth in the world and it's looking for something to do, right? It's like looking for a place to be. And, and that's exactly the phenomenon that Kristen is talking about, the, like this economy being geared towards all of that rather than towards the rest of society. The, way, the reason why we wouldn't have people paying that kind of money for hotel rooms in Tofino is because we'd be paying for things like universal farmer care, right? Uh, we'd be paying for things like universal child care. We'd be paying for things like universal access to care. There'd be so many other things that that money would be going towards than these hotel rooms or yachts, etc. Yeah, and I, I know this is about a different form of taxation, but I read recently that when corporate taxes were higher, companies actually invested a lot more in R&D, um, research and development, um, which can support innovation, which makes us more productive. And the reason for that was they had incentives to circulate the income that they had made, the profit that they had made, and put it back into their business. Uh, whereas with lower corporate um, taxes, there's less of an incentive to do that because the tax rate's lower. So in many ways, whether it's a wealth tax, whether it's a progressive income tax that it, you know, ends billionaires, whether it's raising corporate taxes uh, back to where they used to be, we can have an economy that works for more people if we have a more redistributive tax system. Yeah. And I mean, speaking about redistribution, right? I mean, um, tell your question about could we have a society where people had more access? I mean... The first place to start would be actually reparations, right? There's a huge racial um, disparity in who gets to accumulate wealth and how. And a lot of it is tied in particularly in the West to, you know, who, who was enslaved and who owned enslaved people. Uh, did you come from a jurisdiction 
that was um, extracted from in the colonial era? Or did you, are you from somewhere that benefited from colonial extraction? These are all things that matter. And so in order to, you know, if we're trying to really talk about like a level playing field, I would say that's also one of the places to start. Yeah, um, I totally agree with that, Faria. Um, and I would just add that for for the Canadian context, this is really connected to like the land back movement or Indigenous groups, right? Because a lot of our wealth is held in land. You know, if you're at the very top end of the income spectrum, you also have things like stocks you can play with. But land is a big source of property. The fact is, many of the properties that are owned privately today were not paid for initially. They were they were taken from indigenous populations and provided for free as a handout from the government. So, you know, this is this is not something that is bootstraps necessarily, right? It's accumulated wealth. Um, and I would say it's getting us towards an aristocratic society um, and away from objectives like reconciliation. I guess I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier when I was questioning, like, how do you charge somebody whose assets are illiquid? And I actually, the one argument I found that was like kind of compelling was the idea of like a farmer who owns a ton of land and there's a lot of like value in that land, but that farmer may not actually generate like enough income to pay the taxes on that land. And I'm just wondering, like, how would we deal with something like that? I mean, I think in the Canadian system anyway, there are a lot of systems that are set up to make sure farmers do get some sort of yield. Also, farmers, like they have they have guaranteed sales in some cases, their quota systems. But also the farms that you're talking about that are going to have like $100 million in wealth, the farm owner is making a lot of money off of that for the most part. Um, it's like the farm workers that may have more of an issue, I would say. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's like, Again, all this wealth tax is really targeting like a very small proportion of the population, no matter what, you know, where we're talking about. And so if you're a farmer that's making enough income and owns enough property to be in that bracket, you're, you own an industrial sized farm, right? You, you're not a farmer, you're a corporation. And so you will have other assets that could probably be sold to make it, you probably do make enough money to pay this. As Kristen said, farming in the majority of countries is a um, protected sector. There are subsidies, there are purchase agreements. I understand that where that trope comes from, but it's unlikely, or that kind of farmer that you're thinking of is unlikely to be impacted by a wealth tax that's, again, targeting this very specific part of the population. And also, like, if if the farmer has a farm that is worth $100 million and they're not able to make 2% of that, they're maybe not using the farmland very productively. And maybe yeah. it's good <laughs> that we have a system that incentivizes them selling it. <laughs> it's there for money laundering if, yeah, they can't that 2%. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I suppose, like, a lot of this would be, you know, solved by the increase like because in order to implement a wealth tax we would have to increase the reach and manpower of the tax systems like the cra but like guess what a wealth tax would probably be able to pay for that <laughs> oh certainly so like funding tax collection agencies to do more is like there's a huge return on investment 
<laughs> like, uh, yes, maybe some folks will be more inclined to try to avoid paying taxes with like clever accounting tricks, but we already know how to crack down on most of that stuff. And w- what the problem is, is that we don't have a system that's designed to minimize it. You know, like if we had the political will, there are solutions to these problems. <laughs> Okay, so it sounds like we all kind of agree that a wealth tax is a silver bullet that would solve all of our problems, as Faria <laughs> has said. <laughs> how how could we, like, what would it look like to implement? What are people suggesting? How would we, like, in a dreamscape scenario, what would we do? I mean, the first step is an asset register, right? I mean, there's calls for the global one, but at the domestic level, it's an asset register. I know in... The previous episode I was on, I talked about the enforcement capacity of agencies like CRA, Canadian Revenue Agency, to actually give enforcement capacity to revenue authorities to find out what it is that people own that at the very least that you can see is in your jurisdiction. Um, Over the last, at this point, 15 years, those parts of revenue authorities that are charged with going after high net worth individuals, um, large entities have been defunded. Doing their job has become much, much harder. They're just not given the resources. So that's one of the first steps. Uh, The other thing is uh, financial secrecy, right? Broad transparency around who owns assets where even within the jurisdiction, like um, making sure that you have transparency around beneficial ownership. That's going to be a huge part of it. So there's there's kind of like the execution piece, which is the CRA, but then there's this policy piece around figuring out how do you even know who owns what? And even if people are holding it in like companies, how do we find out who's actually the beneficial owners to, to these assets? So those are kind of two of the first big steps that are needed beyond, you know, get political will behind it, organize it, then go. <laughs> so how do we figure out what people own? Is that is it like if you go to buy a yacht, it gets registered right away, like from the business, like from the dealership perspective, or are we just walking around yard to yard and being like, this person has a Lamborghini? Like, <laughs> functionally, I guess I just don't understand how we track this down. Um, I guess we're expecting people to volunteer the information. You know, when you look up the registration information of, yeah, like of a yacht, right? You'll see it was registered and is owned by this company. You go look for this company. It's owned by another company. And, you know, ultimately, uh, one step around uh, one of these steps, if a jurisdiction has transparency around beneficial ownership, even if it's owned by like ABC company, you'd be able to go to, uh, the UK has something called Companies House. Right, where companies register, you'd be able to look at that register and say, okay, this ABC company is actually owned by this person domiciled at this address. But often jurisdictions will stop short of saying you need to disclose that. That is wild to me that we, so you can look up a company and not figure out who owns it. What? It'll be owned by another company. (laughs) Oh my God. No wonder this is such a mess. Yeah. And it becomes like a huge problem as the financialization of basic needs like housing increases. Like I live in a building that's owned by a numbered company. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to know who the owner of that was so that they could be held accountable for stuff? 
wow, I guess I didn't fully understand just how messed up things are. So like, but it doesn't sound like it would be too difficult. Like it would just be literally running out a law that's just like, okay, we have to know the name of the person who owns a company. And then like people would have to give a name. I guess, I don't know um, if any, if either of you ever watched How I Met Your Mother, but um, there's like a, a running joke where Barney Stinson is like, don't worry about it whenever someone asks him what his job is. And in the later seasons, I guess, spoiler alert for a, a hundred year old like show. But in the later episodes, uh, it becomes clear that his job is to be a fall guy. So he just signs his name to everything. And there's like all of these companies and stuff in his name. And it's like not actually him. So he's just like the fall guy in case anything goes south. <laughs> and so he gets paid like so much money and he doesn't have to do any work. And so they're always like, how do you have so much free time and so much money? He's like, don't worry about it. But it's like, I guess maybe we'd see more um, fall guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's that's the perfect analogy. It is exactly like that. I mean, when the Panama Papers came out, right, th there was a lot of that where people were like, huh? The Panama Papers revealed the actual beneficial owners. But then when you looked at the paperwork, it was often naming like unrelated, like second cousins, third cousins, twice removed, that kind of stuff, right? Because people had put the asset in the names of their fall people. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the reality is, uh, Kyla, you're right to point out that there are challenges, uh, not only to identifying wealth, but also correctly valuing it in some cases. You know, the like Forbes lists and stuff may be completely inaccurate. We really don't have good ways of valuing net worths, but governments would develop systems over time to deal with these challenges. And, and the reality is that, like, even applying a wealth tax uh, where tax collection like isn't as effective as it maybe ideally would be, like, you're still addressing the problem to some extent. As opposed to just kind of like <laughs> waving your hands and being like, it's too difficult and not doing anything at all. It's like I any little step we do would get us more of the wealth we need to be reinvested into the system to help everybody. Even if you're not catching all of it, it's still worth it. And like, you got to start to start. <laughs> yeah. And like, Countries that are going at this on their own um, could apply some measures to dissuade people from hiding their wealth abroad. Or, you know, there's really no evidence that people actually move when taxes go up for the wealthy. Um, people tend to like living where they live. You know, they have communities and families. But, you know, you could impose things like an exit tax on expatriation for really, really wealthy residents. That would be one way to dissuade that. There are a bunch of instruments that could be developed to make a wealth tax more effective. But yeah, even like, even if it's not optimally effective, like it still serves an incredibly important social purpose and will raise a fair amount of money. So why not do it? Exactly that. And, uh, you know, this thing, that's why I said the first step is to empower the CRA, because these are the these are the people who will know, right? What is it that we need to get at this wealth? I guess um, my my personal dreamscape, if we're going to be dreamscaping, is I 
Kyla proposes in her <laughs> in her campaign uh, to run for prime minister a 99% wealth tax on wealth over $100 million because we know that you cannot spend $100 million in 300 years if you're spending $300,000 a year. So, and like, and like obviously smaller percentages leading up to that amount. I don't think anyone should ever have more than $100 million personally. Uh, <laughs> so if we were to tax at 99%, the richest Canadian families who are worth like a trillion dollars altogether would reinvest like a trillion dollars back into the economy because like a hundred million dollars on a trillion is so negligible that you'd basically get all of their wealth back. <laughs> but that's but that's the kind of thing would, that would get people to move. That's a big enough tax. I mean, I think that's the other thing when we talk about these like wealth tax proposals, right? They are literally a fraction. It, you know, that fraction tells you two things, right? One, it's it's a way to make it like politically palatable, but also it gives you a sense of like, how much wealth there really is, you know, coming back to this point, like 3% raises, I think like a 5% yearly tax on the richest 1% globally will raise like 1.7 trillion US dollars, right? It's, there's no reason. And, you know, if you, as you said, if like 99% has a negligible impact, then 3% has a very, very negligible impact. <laughs> I, I would love to see a 99% <laughs> wealth tax. I would also like to see uh, inheritance have a cap of $100 million. Um, I would also like to see no more trusts where people can dictate what charities can do from beyond the grave with their money. Like The Ford Foundation is a really interesting case of that. They are very... No, I wouldn't say like super radical on climate change, but they are like fairly progressive and like doing stuff on climate change and their founder would not have liked that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just fascinating. I I was I think I saw I heard a story recently about like how Hershey has a trust that is meant to provide schooling only for like white orphaned boys, which is like. (laughs) So now the trust like has all this money and they keep having to like go to court to be like, can we maybe have girls? Can we maybe have people who aren't orphans? (laughs) It's like less of a thing now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a whole other episode. But yeah, just if we're we're talking like dream scenario, I would have a global like and I would have us all band together like a a global community where (laughs) the tax rates are the same and they get redistributed based on regions. Oh, dreaming. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's what you're talking about. It is you're describing the end goal of the efforts at the global uh, at the global level, right? Having a global asset registry, having global appetite for a wealth tax, right? To have it be quote unquote universal, to have a UN tax body that decides the rules around um, global taxing, because right now it's the G20. And the OECD, which is hardly representative of like the world. So this idea of, yes, banding together globally to say, you know, there is such a small fraction of people who have this wealth and it needs to be redistributed evenly. Because, of course, for those in least developed countries, their wealthy people are still siphoning off wealth and putting it in places like, you know, uh, the Cayman Islands or Switzerland or Dubai And they are the jurisdictions that need it the most. And they need that global pressure to repatriate that money. So that makes me think of the discussion that's been happening in the climate circles uh, lately, especially at um, the COPs, where the countries that are most affected by climate change, like especially the island nations, they're like, we have no money and you guys have promised to give us money to 
like mitigate the ways that your actions have created climate change in our countries. And they're not getting the money that they need to deal with that. And so like, just imagine how amazing it would be if we had these wealth taxes and we were able to offer reconciliation to the peoples that we have wronged in the past um, and the people that we're currently continuing to wrong. Yeah, not even in the past. Like it could help fund, I mean, forget about like a loss and damages fund, which we should definitely fund. Uh, but we're not even currently funding commitments to international adaptation that have been made. And mitigation. Yeah, as a new uh, oil project in Alaska just got approved. Inequality is actually at the heart of political barriers to doing stuff on climate change. I think I've said this a few times in the podcast before, but it's, I think it's a really important point that people feel climate action primarily punishes them and primarily punishes the poor while wealthy people are sort of left off, like to do whatever they want on their super yachts. Or their jets. Or their, yeah, their jets from <laughs> Hamilton to Toronto or <laughs> one part of LA to another. But yeah, if you implemented something like a wealth tax, it could, first of all, help you raise revenue to support climate mitigation and climate adaptation, but also would go towards showing people that climate action isn't just about like kicking people in the shins. It's, it's also can be about helping people to build a better and like more ecologically sustainable world. If we had a 99% wealth tax, it might also disincentivize people from using private jets to go get coffees every morning. Look, let's start with like somewhere in the <laughs> 1% to 10% range and go from there maybe. Uh, Paula's just like, why don't we just turn the dial to 11? What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody already is on board. Like the fact that it isn't already happening is absolutely mind blowing to me. Is there anything like a normal person can do, I guess, other than like write to their... MP today? Uh, yeah, I mean, people don't like the answer, but it is to get politically involved, right? Whether it's your MP, whether it's finding out which party has it in its platform, right? You're right, you know, the NDP did have it as part of its platform. It's finding out, you know, what movements like resource generation, which I believe is what it's also called in Canada, what are they doing? How are they saying, you know, what regular people can do in their call to action? There's um, Canadians for Tax Fairness. Find out, you know, what actions can be done in your jurisdiction and take them, you know, beyond just voting, you know, voting. But, you know, are there political campaigns you can get a, you can become a part of? I think that's really important because it is politically popular. Right. But it's about how do you create pressure for the political will to change? And it does need to come from also regular people. Because, you know, the right wing arguments tend to be like, well, nobody wants this because nobody wants to jeopardize their chance at getting wealthy and then passing that on to their children. But that also isn't particularly true. Yeah, I mean, these taxes are already incredibly popular. But if you are interested, um, if you're Canadian and you're interested in these issues, Canadians for Tax Fairness has a campaign right now called Tax the Rich, and Oxfam Canada has a campaign specifically for wealth tax. So you can get involved with either of those. Um, in terms of last thoughts, I'd say, look, we, we feel it. Regular people, right? Forget policy wonks that the rich have been getting richer. This is a way of actually addressing that issue. It's the way of saying, okay, they still get to be rich, but that they can't make us poorer while doing it. 
they can't get richer and underfund our services. They don't get to make us miserable while being that rich. Be rich, that's fine. Again, this wealth tax is a fraction of their wealth, but it just means that we still get to live in a society. Thank you so much for joining us, Faria. So eloquent, as always, answered all of my silly questions, which I adore about you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. We're really excited to talk about more solutions on the next episode.